Ellen White says it was racism. She says that the reason why Adventists didn't go down, down south and minister to the blacks was because of racism and was because of rebellion against God. So all the reasons that we can give, Ellen White kind of steps in and says what it ultimately was. I think that all those other things feed into it, but she says that it was a rebellion against God. The Lineage Journey podcast, unscripted conversations that aim to help you on the journey of discovering your lineage. Join us as we take a deeper look into past lineage episodes and see the lessons we can learn for today. Today, we have a special guest joining us from Maryland. His name is Dr. Benjamin Baker. He is one of the foremost experts on the subject of Black history and Adventism, having done his PhD thesis on this at Howard University in Washington, D.C. I listened to a few of his presentations recently. He did one last year, especially during the height of the summer protest that was fascinating with some really, really profound insights into this aspect of Adventist history. So we're glad that he can join us today. And I I believe as you listen to our interview today, you're going to hear things that maybe you haven't heard before and see Adventism in a different light and aspects of our past that will shed light on what our identity as a church was in its inception and where we may have veered from that. Today we have joining us Dr. Benjamin Baker. He's joining us from Maryland. So welcome to you um, near the nation's capital. Hope you're keeping safe over there. And, and thank you for joining us um, over the airwaves and via this forum. As you know, I mentioned in the introduction, you're one of the foremost experts on the, on the, the black work or how Adventism in the black community started in the 1800s and through to the 1900s. I really appreciate your expertise on that. And just wanted to kind of delve into some of the aspects of that and some of the historical lessons we can learn and 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 to see how adventism grappled with that side of its early identity and and so on so thank you for joining us thank you for having me okay so the first question i wanted to get into just to get right into it and you know maybe in this age of you know really in the last year we've had a lot of you know black lives matter protests and the social justice movement's gotten big and so on and and i i think you know i i had read my fair share of adventist literature maybe 10 15 20 years ago but never really understood maybe how deep or the ways early adventism was linked with the abolition movement would you like to maybe expand a little bit on that how adventism in its early days like the 1840s and the 1850s was linked with abolition and and really what that means you know for our identity as seventh-day adventist yes yes a very good question i think that the one of the best indicators of a fruitful area of history and as historians we call it historiography which is the process of doing history. Hmm. We mainly do history from available documents, oral history interviews, if the people are still alive and, and, and other means. But one of the signs of a fruitful area of historiography is that you're still finding more on it. Mm -hmm. And many of us now are turning back to the Millerite period, the 1830s, and the 1840s, hmm. from which Seventh-day Adventism sprung. And with the really rise and dominance of the internet, we are finding myriad sources, myriad new sources now 
that uh, you name it, newspapers, manuscripts, correspondence, you name it, linking the Millerite movement with the abolitionist movement. Mm. And in fact, uh, Kevin Burton, who is my colleague and who I who I mm-hmm. must, give, must give props to, he's he's now basically proven that the Millerite movement really arose thanks to the abolitionist movement. Wow. So there's a strong is, connection. Yes, yeah, strong connection. That is the the networks of abolitionism, which were strong throughout New England and New York in the 1830s and 40s, mm-hmm. were what brought the Millerite movement to the fore. Uh, the newspapers, the gatherings, uh, the house meetings, the churches, these were the areas that really uh, promulgated and advanced William Miller's message. Hmm. Of course, Miller himself was a staunch abolitionist. Uh, we know this, but then his lieutenants, uh, other Millerite leaders like Joshua Himes were just integral uh, to the abolitionist movement. They started, uh, at, they, they were involved in the Underground Railroad. Uh, they started abolitionist papers. They petitioned, they made abolitionist petitions. Uh, the midnight cry, all of the signs of the times, all of the Millerite newspapers almost doubled as abolitionist papers. Hmm. They raised money for abolitionism. Uh, they got help for fugitive slaves. So the Millerite movement was absolutely inseparable from the abolitionist movement. They, they, you could rearrange pieces. Hmm. I find that fascinating. Yes. So yes. you're saying that, 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 that the network of abolitionists, you know, obviously there would be, it's an underground network, but that is part of what enabled William Miller's message to spread so quickly because the same contacts and so on as well. Yes. Yes, definitely. In fact, we've often talked about Joshua V. Himes's how he was a public relations wizard. Mm-hmm. He was a public relations genius. He learned these methods from the abolitionist movement. Wow. Uh, because the abolitionist movement was all about drumming up support for, mm-hmm. you know, the freedom of slaves yeah, yeah. And, and the ultimate freedom of slaves, ultimate emancipation, but also uh, the Underground Railroad and uh, political pressure. So it was all about networking. You know, if, if Himes was alive today, he would be on Twitter and Instagram and all this stuff because it was all about networking. That was the whole game. And so it was moving the political needle uh, in favor of the black slaves. Hmm. So this was a ready-made infrastructure, a ready-made network that the Millerites uh, took advantage of. Besides that, there were, I I believe, I theorize that this is really what attracted so many blacks to the Millerite movement. And Adam, we are finding scores and scores of more blacks. Wow. Now that were that were Millerites and they're beyond. They are the big names, but they're even beyond the big names and just hundreds of blacks all along the eastern seaboard and even in the slave states. So we're finding black slaves who were Millerites, who before we kind of thought that Millerism was inimical Mm -hmm. to slavery because, you know, obviously it it tended to we, we have we have evidence we have newspaper reports 
of slaveholders who heard the Millerite message and they emancipated their slaves. Mm-hmm. They heard the Millerite message because of the Millerite message. Wow. We always thought that it was inimical to slavery, but it turns out that some of the masters on some plantations uh, let their slaves believe, you know, they, the, the slaves heard of the Millerite doctrine uh, of the soon second coming and they, they believed it. I mean, they held to it. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. So, I mean, we, I mean, I think I heard a, a previous podcast by yourself or maybe one with yourself and Kevin Burson, where you, you mentioned that there's not much documentation on the underground railroad because it was underground. And so, you know, people weren't keeping records of, of, you know, who was freeing the slaves, et cetera. But I appreciate that now we're maybe getting little snippets more, but I, I have heard, and you mentioned a few magazines there that are integral to the Millerite movement. I have heard that the Adventist review, which is, you know, still in circulation today as you know, the, the, the review, I think it's called Adventist World, was banned in the South um, because it because of its strong abolitionist um, sentiments that were expressed in there. Could you give kind of maybe some yeah. insight on that? Yes, yes. A, a few of your points, as you said, uh, the Underground Railroad was illegal. I mean, the, you know, with the Fugitive Slave Act of 1798 and then was ratified and sort of morphed again in 1850. Mm-hmm. White says you should not obey the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, this was illegal and it caused you to be ostracized. It could result in jailing. It could result in fines. And so you didn't want to make it known that you were harboring fugitive slaves. Mm-hmm. So imagine how impossible it is. I, I mean, Adam, the whole Underground Railroad was, was built on secrecy. Mm-hmm. The whole thing. That was the only way that it could survive. And so to find evidence now that someone operated an underground railroad station, which is just opening up your house, opening up your barn, maybe your church, some area on your property to a fugitive slave who's en route to probably Canada or Ohio. Mm-hmm. That's what it consisted of. So with people like John Byington, his brother Anson, uh, George Irwin, uh, Butler, some of these early GC presidents, what we're finding now is a cubbyhole, you know, uh, in the house and mm. in a diary entry is mm. that, you know, this, this escaped slave was here. And so the, this is how we're piecing it together. Mm. Sometimes, you know, you have them outright, outright saying it, but as far as the Adventist review being banned in the South, the, the Confederacy was monitoring the mail because they didn't want any propaganda from the North Hmm. that would sort of sway the people's opinion. And the Adventist review was, you can say whatever you want about our, our founders, but it was constantly having screeds and constantly in vain condemning slavery Mm -hmm. uh, and the Confederacy. That's one thing that it was doing all of the time. I mean, they, they were, they, in fact, James White said, Every single Adventist voted for Lincoln. Now, that seemed like some hyperbole, uh, but, you know, apparently he didn't know of one that did not vote for it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Every single voting Adventist had mm. Adventists who could vote voted for mm. Lincoln. And they're saying things like Ellen White saying things like uh, Satan invented Satan created the Confederacy. Mm. So things like that, the post carriers in the South could not. They were prohibited from carrying the Adventist review. 
Wow. Wow. I mean, to me, I find that fascinating. And I think for us as Adventists, it really says something about our early identity that our first GC president, you know, you, I mean, GC president is like, you know, using his farm on the railroad. And, you know, our early magazine was speaking out that boldly on, on these issues that it was, you know, it was censored and it was banned. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, but, but one point on that, because people now, think that it was a a done deal and everyone in the north was against slavery that is not the case at all yeah true not yeah. the case at all whole churches were splitting over the issues some pro-slavery some anti and this is in the north mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so it, it it still took uh courage and it it, it it cost politically as we see with the sort of um what Adventists reaped after emancipation, they had a hard time in the South because of the stance that they took on slavery and because mm-hmm. they were so vocal with it. So I mean, it was a price. What was some, of, I mean, do you know what was some of the denominations, was there certain denominations that were kind of pro-slavery and even though they were in the North and Adventism was a kind of different, different from them or was it hard, to, is it hard to put on denominational lines? Yeah, Southern Baptists, uh, certain Methodists, Presbyterians, really all of the denominations, some part of their um, some part of their church split and was on the side of slavery. Hmm. Okay, so I, I would say um, almost every single denomination. I'm not sure about the Catholics, but basically um, all of the major Protestant denominations. You know, you have the smaller ones like um, maybe the Church of God, maybe mm-hmm. the Christian Connection, things like that. They didn't split the Quakers. They didn't split, but the large ones—Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, uh, Episcopalians—they, they, a significant amount of them split because of slavery. Hmm. So, in some ways, I think uh, would you be of agreement that the that the Adventist Church and movement part of it was, you know, this was another piece of restoring the the image of God to to those they were witnessing to in terms of a stand that they had to take. Yes, yes, definitely. I, I think that, that that's one part of our our message that's lost sight of, that we were the finishers, if you will, of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. And that the Protestant Reformation was not a discrete event, but it was a odyssey, it was a journey. Mm-hmm. And we're like, I mean, this, this sounds hubristic, it sounds arrogant, but... <laughs> We are the completers of it. Mm. We're supposed to totally, you know, remove ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so Martin Luther started it, maybe even before then. Mm. We are we are finishing it, and I think that a key part of it is is the racist piece. Mm. You know, treating everyone with dignity and respect and in, in, in the image of God. Mm. Maybe just want to go back a little bit and talk and talk about maybe one specific episode of of, of early Ad, or early Millerite um, Adventist history. And you mentioned about you know there were some prominent blacks involved in the work. And I, I've read a book by your father called The Unknown Prophet. And we did a lineage episode on on William Foy and Hazen Foss, just comparing one who was faithful and one who was 
one who was faithful and one who was unfaithful. And in some circles, you know, when I was before I'd read the book, I heard some people say that, oh, you know, he rejected the gift or et cetera, et cetera. But I believe your father correctly points out that he didn't and he shared faithfully what God had given to him and, and so on. Um, just maybe some, I don't know, maybe just kind of pick your brain a little bit on, on, on William Foy a little bit. You know, why do you think maybe like he was a... I don't know. Like I've, I've sometimes wondered why his ministry kind of didn't continue beyond the great disappointment and, and, and go further yeah. than that. Have you? Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a good question, Adam. You see that God seemed to have, I don't know what God, uh, he, he, he seems to be an equal employment God. Mm-hmm. Amen. Because yeah. there's William Foy, who's black. There's Hazen Foss, who's white. And then there's Ellen White, who's a woman. And these are the major demographics at the time in that area. You know, the mm-hmm. northeastern quadrant of, uh, of North America. And so God apparently had a, had a ministry for each of them. And I don't know, Adam, about their contingency. Mm. So if Hazen Foss had been faithful, would Ellen White have come along? I don't know. Yeah, true. We do know that in the Bible that there were myriad prophets operating even at one time True, and yeah. they each had their own ministry. So this is what my father theorizes about William Foy, that he was called to guide the believers up to that October 22 point, essentially. Hmm. And that after that, Ellen White kind of took over. It's hmm. always interesting to look at people who say that he rejected the call because he actually published a pamphlet. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, how did he not share his visions when he actually published a pamphlet? And even John Loughborough and Ellen White say that he had, because in his pamphlet, he shared two of his visions. But John Loughborough and Ellen White said that he had a third and a fourth. Hmm. So he was, they wouldn't know that unless he shared Mm -hmm. the visions. And Loughborough even describes his third. Um, And so... He was he was faithful to the call as to why he didn't continue. I have I have no idea Mm. that's beyond me. But we do know from from eyewitness testimonies that he talked about all four of his visions, but he didn't understand the fourth, the third and the fourth, which seemed to indicate the three angels messages, Mm. which really occurred after Babylon fell. Mm-hmm. and the everlasting gospel. So that seemed to be sort of Seventh-day Adventism. Mm-hmm. And he didn't understand that. And so he would talk about it, but it sort of took some of the wind from his sails because he didn't comprehend it like he did the first and the second. Mm. So, you know, that that's probably the best I can give about that. Mm. Well, I think he had a key ministry that, that served the church, the believers at that time. And, you know, we... Uh, like you say, some of the, the some of the other questions or answers we we don't have, and we we trust we trust God for that. So the early Adventism, we've got abolition, we've got people on the Underground Railroad. I mean, the first GC president would have been in the 1860s, who was Underground Railroad. So we have, and then Lincoln is you know around the same time, and you know we had the Civil War around the same time, and Adventists are pitching themselves on the sides of abolition. And Ellen White had several visions about you know you know against slavery and against racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So 
we kind of have this picture that Adventism is cutting edge. I guess you'd say it's counter, it's countercultural. It's it's different. Our pioneers are abolitionists uh, and so on. And then Ellen White writes a book or publishes a book called The Southern Work. Um, so, I mean, if Adventists were already, in a sense, countercultural or, or abolitionist or cutting edge, why was this just an, a, a continuation of that where Ellen White is now emphasizing the Southern work or was it, did we kind of slack off? And so she needed to remind the believers, where do you see that, that book Southern work fitting in, in the progression? Yeah. Yes. That is the question. I would say that, and this is not to cast any aspersions on the South, but Adventists were doing great. And this is actually, uh, Adam, with Arna Bontemps, you know, the great poet of the Harlem Renaissance. Hmm. Once he grew up Adventist, he taught at Oakwood, taught at Harlem Academy. But this is how he characterized Adventists. He said, we did great in the early years, but then Adventism went south (laughs) and we became great. So that's how he characterized it. Hmm. And I, I submit to that characterization. The... The South was sort of a tornado on Adventism because all the blacks were there, Adam. Mm. (laughs) I mean, what, you may have had, what, 5% in the North, maybe less than that. And so all the blacks were South. And so in order to reach blacks, you had to go into that fraught and problematic culture of the Confederacy. Mm. And this is during uh, Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so Adventists were, I mean, I, I, I don't want to compare it to anything today because I may be politically incorrect, but it's like going to a totally different culture that you were antagonistic toward and that you were condemning all the time in your paper. And as James White says in a very, I really want to send you this, uh, in a very interesting uh, article, he says, we were born because they were reacting to the South. Mm-hmm. Some of the um, former Confederates, they had Confederate generals in their houses, pictures of them in their houses. And James White said, we kind of need to understand where these people are coming from. Me and my wife, Joseph Bates, others, we were born in the North and were anti-slavery from the very start. Mm-hmm. That's how we were raised. James White actually says that. It's a very interesting article. Wow. Uh, but he says they weren't. They were raised totally different. And so Adventism, their Northern culture is so different from the South that in order for evangelistic success, they had to uh, yield to some of the Southern mores, like Mm. uh, segregation. And so all of Ellen White's statements that seem to be racist and seem to promote separation of the races, what have you, those are in the context of trying to evangelize and reach people in the South. Mm. Because when those racial uh, principles or policies were not observed by Adventists, when they were flouted by Adventists, even mildly, like Elmira Steele had an orphanage and she was a white woman and she had black kids in the orphanage. And they said, oh, you're a nigger lover and you're race mixing. Mm. Even mild things like that, Elmira Steele got her orphanage burned down. Wow. Edson and the Southern Missionary Society got event, basically run out of the South. You know, there was, mm-hmm. a, and there was guns and all that stuff. So they got run out. And so some of Ellen White's statements, even in Southern work, are a reaction to that. She's a church leader who wants the church members to be safe and she wants the gospel to go to the South. 
And so it wasn't happening when the Northerners were just coming there and just flouting all principles of, 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 of racial separation. Hmm. So when you read Southern work, most of it, like 80, 75% of it is just awesome statements on race and our okay. equality in Christ and all of that. But like 20, 25% of it is we, we may need to observe in certain places the separation of the races just so that we can have evangelistic success hmm. and that we can reach people with the gospel who need it. Hmm. So those, of who are, those, of, those who are reading Southern work, they'll read some really great things, but then there'll be some troubling things and those need to be contextualized. Hmm. What percentage, uh, maybe you don't know this, but I mean, throwing a question at you on, on population, would you say of the South was black at the time? Like you, the majority of the blacks were in the South. Was a majority of the population in the South black as well? Or were they still the minority to whites in the South? In the 90s, I would say 30 or 40 percent. 30, 40% were black. Okay, yeah, so it's, that's it's a big part of it. Like if you go really in the black belt in the deep south, like Mississippi is probably like 40%. Wow. But if you go upper south, like Tennessee, uh, Kentucky, I'm thinking 30% around there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, with the emancipation, there were about 4 million blacks emancipated. Okay, okay. So Ellen White had a son, well, she had two, uh, a couple of sons, and Edson White, you know, her son was a bit of a rebel. Anyway, he read the Southern work and he, he builds a boat up in Michigan and sails it across the Lake Michigan to, and then, and then makes his way down the Mississippi, I believe it was. And yeah, I know you just referenced it right now that he had a few problems and was run out of a few places with pistols and whips and, and, and other types of things. But I remember I was at Oakwood a couple of years ago and there's a, there's a house there, something called the, the morning. Yeah. Morning Star or something, and they've got a, a heritage room where I believe they've got the the wheel or something of the of the Morning Star there. Yeah. Um, so it, it's had a the Morning Star boat had a big impact on the on the work. Could you share some of the impact the boat and had on short term at the time, but also the longer reaching impact of that boat on the black work in in in, in America? Yes, yes. By the way, have you listened to my video called The Separation of James and Ellen White? I just put up a video on YouTube on The Separation of James and Ellen White. And it's interesting you mentioned that, that Edson was a rebel because they were having some marital trouble, James and Ellen. And there's a lot of reason why you have marital problems, but Edson was kind of at the center of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm familiar with that, like how they dealt with him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So parenting. So it's interesting how God... And, and this is perhaps hope for some of your listeners. You know, if you have a child who's a rebel, if you're a rebel yourself, mm. God has a place for you in his work. Mm-hmm. And it may be an unorthodox place where you, because, you know, everything about the Morning Star ministry was sort of, you know, um, honed for a rebel. Yeah. You know, it was kind of perfect for a rebel. But the, the Morning Star, you're right. Uh, James Edson, Edson White had come across his mother's Our Duty to the Colored People speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, she gave in 1891. And he was also, he also um, heard, heard of some other people who had gone south. And so he, he got it into his head and he teamed up with a, a, a man named Will Palmer. Mm-hmm. Edson's wife as well, Emma. And I always mention Emma because she got malaria in the south. Hmm. And she ultimately ended up dying from malaria complica- complications years later. So she's like a martyr. 
Mm-hmm. And, and this was this was another thing. It wasn't just racism that was stopping Northern Adventists from going south. It was a horrible environment for white people mm-hmm. <laughs> with the heat and the malaria. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they would remark on this. They're like, this is no place for white people, you know, <laughs> with the malaria and all that stuff. You know, the Africans who come from the tropics, they're fine here, but not the white people. I mean, this sounds politically incorrect now, but that's that, that's the, the sort of things that they were saying. And so they they came up with a boat because it was mobile mm-hmm. and because they knew that they would have to go from place to place because they may experience persecution. And so that's exactly what happened. Um, they went from place to place on the Mississippi. Uh, it, it, in a word, Adam, the. The Morning Star Ministry, and it's the Southern Missionary Society. That's the that's the name of the of the ministry. Really, once Ellen White got behind it, and once some of the other leaders, you know, glommed onto it, Edson, in his way, was uh, very uh, controversial, and he ruffled a lot of feathers. Uh, but eventually, there was some denominational support for it, uh, but. That was in many ways the uh, a foundation of the black work hmm. as there were feeder schools that were started. Some say that it sort of created an environment for Oakwood. I think that it was somewhat apart, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, eventually the Southern Union was formed because Edson went to Nashville, um, hmm. sort of built off that work. Message Magazine was started, which was originally the Gospel Herald, which Edson okay. started. Uh-huh. And that still so, runs today. Yeah, and so many ministers, uh, like Matthew Strawn and, and just so many others, Alfonso Berry, came to the faith because of the Morning Star in that ministry. And so it was extremely foundational and important to the black work. At the same time, a lot of us are kind of moving away from the white savior myth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I was gonna ask I was gonna ask you about that. Was, yeah. Yeah, well, we're we're just kind of complicating it because there were, they had extensive black help mm-hmm. um, from Finnis Parker, who helped uh, to navigate, to show them how to get different places in the South on the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was black and he was, he was cap- captaining the Morning Star. And it was against the law for blacks to captain boats on the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And so when another boat came down, Finnis kind of had to duck out of the way. And then Edson or Will Palmer took over. Okay. So, you know, that's sort of like a metaphor. The blacks had to get out of the way and then the whites kind of take all the credit. Mm. But Nate Olvin and so many other people who were involved in the Southern Mission Society and the Morning Star sort of helped it, helped it to be uh, the success that it was. It was short lived, too. It was like five years. Okay. So it was a short lived ministry, but it was it was far reverberating in its in its in its impact. Would you say, like you've mentioned some of the blacks on the boat at the time, would you say it was kind of a symbiotic relationship with between them in that the, the blacks couldn't have done that work at the time on their own and the whites likewise couldn't have done that on their own. They needed kind of the help of each other, but maybe we haven't given due credit where it's due on both sides, on, on one side. Yes, yes, definitely. Well said. I, I, I totally agree. It, it's the, the Morning Star, uh, the Morning Star crew, the Southern Missionary Society, they needed... Uh, black assistance, and of course, back then whites had more cachet 
Mm-hmm. In in black areas, just because that's the way it was with with you know slavery and all that stuff, and so it, there was symbiosis in their in their relationship, definitely. Mm. Um, would you say that the the work that Edson and his crew did was a pioneering work? Were they were they the first ones down there? I know there was a dynamic time. There was a lot of things happening across. You know, the South is a huge area, but were they the pioneers there, or were they just kind of? the first big one down there yeah as far as i know they were the first ones in mississippi where they went like yazoo city vicksburg Antonia. Mm-hmm. they were the first ones there even though it's interesting in that area there was a man ah, his name is escaping me something parker i think and he was something of a prophet before edson and his team arrived he said to the inhabitants of, of, this is like almost like biblical, to the black inhabitants of Yazoo City, he said they kind of rejected his message, Adam. And so he said, somebody greater than me is coming. Hmm. <laughs> and then the, the Morning Star comes in, you know, the Morning Star boat comes in. I can send you more about that story. Hmm. Um, so there were sort of witnesses before them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as I know, they were the first in in deep Mississippi, and and in many places along the Mississippi, they were the first. But there were there were a lot of other people in the South, but it was very uh, peripatetic. It was, you know, get here, do a meeting, go there, do a meeting, go there, do a meeting, and there wasn't much sustained growth, mm-hmm. um, like like with the Morning Star. So, I mean, just kind of looking at maybe the, the growth of the work. So they go down there, they, they they start some, I guess there's some schools that come up. And you said that there's the, the Southern the Southern Union, the Southern Publishing work. Was the Southern Union originally, you know, for the, the, the black work? Or was it just kind of, would it just cover the whole of the South? Black uh, and white? I would say that the Southern Union uh, came from it. I guess the Southern Conference would be first. Okay. The Southern Union, but that's a good question. It was, it was multiracial, but I would say largely from the start, it was blacks and a lot of poor whites. Okay. Um, because that was that was really the you know the main population at the time in the South. Um, you see all of Ellen White's testimonies about how we should go for the better classes sometimes. Mm-hmm. 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 Better classes. And the rich and all that stuff. So that was something that Adventists had to focus more on. But I would say from the beginning, it was mostly blacks and poor whites, although there were there were others. Um, but with the start of the Southern Conference, before there was like a loose sort of inchoate organization of district number one, district number two, district number three. And then it became the Southern Conference and then the Southern Union. But Edson there. Of course, they started a publishing house, Southern Publishing. Mm-hmm. As I said, you, you know, the, the usual Adventist agenda, publishing, mm-hmm. medical with Riverside Hospital, okay. uh, a, a conference office, and full, Edu- they had, they had education you mm-hmm. know, with, with Oakwood and other schools. And so it was the usual Adventist modus operandi. Mm-hmm. Who was the first black minister in the South? Was it someone kind of from the morning star was it separate to that um yeah i would say the first the first black minister was was separate from the morning star it was probably harry low okay Edgefield junction tennessee which is near nashville mm-hmm. but he was more uh he was more associated with uh silas osborne 
uh, who first did ministry down there. And then there was Charles Kinney was rather early. Oh yeah. Charles Kinney yeah. in Reno, Nevada, but then he ended up winding his way South. Uh, and there were, there were some others. And so this is, this is significantly, this is probably 15, 20 years before uh, the morning star went South. Okay. Yeah. So at this time when these ministers start, was there, were they kind of in, were they employed as ministers by the church in the early years, the, the, these, these pioneer ministers? Yeah, you know, it's funny. And, and I just thought of another one, Alonzo Berry, Alfonso Berry, mm-hmm. Alonzo Alfonso, and he was in um, Louisville, Kentucky. It, it's sort of interesting that the pay, the salary of early Adventist ministers, uh, it was very unreliable. And so sometimes when you talk about pay or were they employed, uh, there was sort of a loose relationship. They definitely didn't receive benefits. In fact, that's sort of a sketchy area of Adventist history about mm. ministers receiving the benefits. Uh, their salary was sort of based on tithes and offerings, which was not always uh, consistent. Mm-hmm. Didn't always get to them. But Charles Kinney was employed. Alfonso Berry was employed. Harry Lowe was pre, probably be classified as a as a, as a lay minister. Okay, uh, he he had a trade, but he was also the head minister of the church. Lineage is a nonprofit organization kept running by generous donors like you. Support us today on patreon.com forward slash lineage journey. History shapes identity, identity shapes mission, and a clear mission determines the trajectory of your future. Knowing where you come from is key to understanding your present purpose and your future mission. Lineage Journey is a series of videos that will take you on a journey through time, discovering the key people and events that have shaped the Christian faith. From the Waldenses to Martin Luther to Zwingli, from England to France, Switzerland to Germany, The light broke over the horizon of Europe, piercing through the dark ages and then spread out over the world. As the United States of America rose to supremacy, Christianity formed the bedrock of this great nation. And so from the Great Awakening to the Great Disappointment and beyond, lineage follows the journey of God's church throughout time, immersing you in the places, the stories and the people through whom Christianity has shone the brightest. Join us on a journey through time. Follow us on social media at Lineage Journey or check out our website at lineagejourney.com. Lineage Journey not only produces video content, but instructive and illuminating resources to teach young and old about Christian history. Lineage has produced an educational coloring book for people of all ages. It includes original artwork from Ashley Bloom, highlighting the various heroes of the Reformation. Each scene has a matching story, and there are also QR codes to connect you to the website for more information and to watch the videos. There are also fun facts and memorable quotes to accompany the scenes to color in. Designed for young and old alike, get your copy now at lineagejourney.com.
What about the other denominations in the South? Were Advent were Adventists kind of pioneers in like, you know, if we were like up north and we were early Adventist Millerites and then early Seventh Adventists were kind of countercultural in the sense that they were abolitionists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, slavery is now abolished, but you know, conditions haven't changed much. What, was it seen as a ripe kind of hunting ground for evangelism to, to head to the south by all denominations, or what? Were Adventists ahead of the game, or were we just kind of was everyone else down there as well at the time? Yeah, everyone else was down there. <laughs> in fact, Ellen White says we're like the last ones. Ellen oh, wow. um, White says. The other denominations have beat us to it. And and this was a little bit what was behind, a little bit of what was behind her when she says, sin rest upon us because we're not doing more for, for the blacks in the South. And she says, we haven't touched one, one, one hundredth of this. Mm. She said that like in the early 1900s. And she talked about how the monies that were raised for the Southern work by Adventists, they were, they were being defrauded and misappropriated by church leaders hmm. and it was racism. And so we were way behind. I mean, this is one area, this is not like health reform or something else where we can say, oh, we were years ahead. We were way behind and Ellen White is constantly bringing this. In fact, she, it seems like she's trying to shame Adventists because she said, look at how much the Catholics have done, hmm. <laughs> you know, you know, down there. And she says, you know, we're, we're like the last. And so I would say that we were we were very much um, much behind, unfortunately. So I mean, maybe going back to a point you made earlier. I mean, we started off abolition, and da, 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 and then I think you made the point that when we went south, we went south, kind of, you know, <laughs> figuratively speaking. That's pretty good, um, Adam. Please let me use that. Uh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, we. I mean, is it that the reality of what we'd been talking about was a lot harder, or? or I mean, it, it wasn't an easy work. Yeah, well, there there are a lot of explanations and they may just be just that. They may be, you know, hemming and hawing. But mm. the church had, had only incorporated in 1863. True, yeah. It was a brand new church. And that aligned with the Emancipation Proclamation. And so I've often said that the you know, the odyssey of African-Americans has really aligned with the Seventh-day Adventist church. And we've kind of grown up together as it were, but the church had, there was about what, 3,500 Adventists, Seventh-day yeah. Adventists when it was incorporated. Mm -hmm. And we were also kind of getting over the war. In fact, Kevin Burton has come up with civil war stats and he's, he's figured out that the Adventist rate of joining the civil war uh, kind of aligned with the nation's. Hmm. And so the Adventist men of age served in roughly the same ratio as, as the national average, you know, in the, in the, in the union, in the North. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of were getting over that as well. Uh, we were just really realizing that we were supposed to preach the gospel to the whole world. So there were, hmm. there were all of these, there were all of these things, of course, there were growing pains. I don't think people realize how uh, disputed at times the, prophethood of Ellen White was true. Yeah. Um, I mean, so there was just all sorts of things. There were scandals. There was a Snook and Brinkerhoff scandal uh, right around 1863. And so we were getting attacked from all over. The church was new. It didn't have many political connections and there just weren't many missionaries or ministers. True. Yeah. And so, you know, 
I guess um, we were starting world missions as well. We were going to Europe and other places, so it was yeah. You, know, you could say we stretched thin. Yeah, John Andrews goes to what Switzerland mm-hmm. in in eighteen early eighteen seventies, and they they go on to England, and and so there's a lot happening. But Adam, I must say this: that Ellen White says it was racism. Hmm. She says that the reason why Adventists didn't go down down south and minister to the blacks was because of racism and was because of rebellion against God. Hmm. So all the reasons that we can give, Ellen White kind of steps in and says what it ultimately was. I think that all those other things feed into it, but she says that it was a rebellion against God. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, maybe that kind of goes into the next question I was going to ask, and that, you know, once the work started and progressed, it, it started to flounder a, a little bit. And But then you, you've mentioned a little bit that when they went to the South, it, it, it led to the need for a more separate work as opposed to maybe being integrated. Um, yeah, it was, it was much better um, for blacks to work for blacks and whites to work for whites. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it was. You know, the term haters. Mm-hmm. When whites work for blacks, and let alone blacks working for whites. But when whites worked among blacks in the South, haters came from all over. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were whites hating against the whites. There were blacks hating against the, against the whites. And they were saying, when you come down here and talk to blacks, you're making it worse for all of us. Mm-hmm. Because there was persecution and general animosity toward blacks when whites came and tried to improve the lot of blacks. Hmm. Even without the gospel, just education or teaching them trades. Because mm-hmm. remember, there was a competition between blacks and poor whites. Hmm. And so when Adventists came from the north and and they were working among among blacks whites would get jealous they would see it as upsetting the the delicate the delicate balance in the south and it would it would it would go sideways you know all all the all the different ways you can imagine it and so what ellen white was trying to do from the very beginning and you'll see this constantly in her writings she's saying let's let's train up black ministers to work for blacks Mm-hmm. And this has often been cited as, you know, she's being racist. You know, you'll see some of these Internet sites and all that stuff saying she's being racist. But that was that was basically the only way it could work in the South during Reconstruction and, and after. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I mean, maybe we don't have time to get into this. And I think maybe it would be good to have a, another discussion when we talk about this more but I think one thing people outside North America grapple with is I think understanding the the climate of the late 1800s and early 1900s is one thing and the, the need for something that was separate then I think some people struggle with the the continued separate structure that we have you know a hundred years on and and wonder if there there is a another option but uh, I know that's a heated debate and Maybe oh, don't want to get into it. We can get into it. 
<laughs> yeah, maybe another time. Because um, I know I know the history of that and, and how that all started is is quite a fascinating and insightful history that, that maybe not not everyone knows. But yeah. I mean, what do you think as Adventists? I mean, an application for us today is you know if we look at the 1840s and 30s as you mentioned and and, and even beyond and how we were in a sense cutting edge. What was it about the way we viewed scripture or the way, the way we interpreted that led us to do that? And what would how how do we is there a I don't want to get political or bring up things today necessarily but how can we have that same edge to us today or yeah. uh, where the church is relevant in in not just you know the pulpit but also outside? Yeah, well, well, well one of the one of the key things I think that has torpedoed us as a church is that we've been accepted. Mm. Um, as much as we have been accepted, I understand that in some places, Adventism, it's still, you know, people may think of us as a cult or something like that. But I think by and large, we are accepted and respectable. Mm-hmm. You know, the most diverse church in America yeah, and yeah. the strongest uh, educational empire or, you know, the, the vast educational empire. And now, Adam, in the States, you see Advent Health everywhere now. Yeah. I'm saying the NBA. <laughs> in fact, you know, the NBA, you know, during the bubble, yeah. Last, last year, they were doing interviews and Advent Health was all behind it. So Ad, I think Advent Health was sponsoring the bubble. Yeah. 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 You know, they're in Orlando. And so we have acceptance. And even in the 1950s, um, you know, with questions on doctrine and all that, mm-hmm. stuff, we were accepted then. So before we were accepted, I think that we were more apt to speak truth to power. Mm because our acceptance wasn't on the line. We weren't politically, we weren't politically connected. Um, we could still speak truth to power, um, speak against the American government. And we said some harsh things against America. Um, and, and that has been suppressed. We've stopped Mm -hmm. that. We have stopped Mm -hmm. that. But we said some, some really truthful things about America from prophecy because this was, before we were accepted and, and really acceptance oftentimes is like the death knell of, of a, den- a denomination, like yeah. Christianity and, and, and the present truth and the straight gospel. And so this acceptance really, you know, it got us comfortable and we became a part of the war- warp and woof. I mean, for, for a long, for many years, we were seen as the true Americans, you know, and mm. was like American, like an apple, because, you know, we, we are, we are an American derived religion. Mm-hmm. Nation. And so I would say it was that acceptance uh, that's that definitely tamped down our message hmm. and made it a lot tamer. I would also say, and this is there's nothing that we can do about this, but the more organized you get, the less you speak the truth. Hmm. It's true. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if I put it as boldly as that. So when when we were not really that organized. And some of our doctrines were still up in the air. Some of our policies were not established. We didn't have a nice headquarters here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just spoke the straight truth. Mm-hmm. Once we became organized, it was almost there became a party line. And mm-hmm. with that party line was political acceptance. And if you say this, you may lose the government funds, mm-hmm. the government subsidies. And so, you know, these these are some of the some of the things that I that, that I think of. I, I also, I mean, come on, the the pioneers were young. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know how, it, Adam, when you're young, you can go for it. But then once you get middle aged and older, uh, what? You know, the, the mess, somehow the message is just watered down. It's true. <laughs> Things, but you know, those that that's that's how I would respond to your question. It's a good question. It's a great question. Maybe I'd like to ask you maybe uh, as we as we wrap things up, what would you say, and I'm sure you've been asked this question before, you've dealt with this issue that people say Adventism, you know, it was kind of racist at the start, or Adventism is racist, or they say things like that, and they point to various episodes of our history, but I mean for me personally, when I look at certain of our early beginnings, you know, we, we don't have that. But what would you say to someone who, who grapples with, you know, Adventism being, you know, being racist or being out of touch um, in terms of our early identity? I mean, how do you help someone maybe see see around that or, or through that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting because at some point, and, and this is this is very traceable and there are a lot of elements to it. At some point we were way behind Adam. That is mm-hmm. the proof. In fact, you know, General Katzenberger, the come on, the US Secretary of, of, of Education or something, he, he had to cajole Adventists in the nineteen sixties to desegregate their schools. Mm. And he said, This is the law. You have to do it. And so this is how behind we were. And you can you can look at many instances of Adventist history that are flat out racist. Um, and there's I mean, there, there's really no explanation for it. Hmm. Uh, but but what I would say is a, a couple of things. Number one, you can always find hopefully the Adventist majority, but definitely pockets who were prophetic and who were not racist during the hard times. Like for instance, I, also, I often talk about how uh, black Adventists didn't have the luxury of not being involved in politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, that was their community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was directly their community. And so they were always engaged. Um, and certain whites were always uh, progressive and, and helping blacks. So I would say you have to have some selective, but I mean, why can't, why can't we just use the past as a, uh, a learning tool and say we are apt to racism to the sin of racism mm-hmm. everyone else so let's do double to not succumb to that I mean we can, we can use that as a learning tool I can't I can't paint the past and say that we were great on race relations during this period and that period um, but I can say that uh, our, our, our past is rich with lessons and so when we were great great with it, you know, condemning slavery and all of this. Um, we can learn from that. And when we were not good on it, when we were behind everybody else, we can also learn from that. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I think that's that's wise words. There were, like you say, there's episodes of our history where we were ahead of the game and there's episodes where we were far, far behind and we, we need to learn from both and, and chart out a future for ourselves personally, but also against a wider denomination and Christianity um, today as well. So thank you. Thank you for your insights and thank you for joining um, with us. I know there's a whole lot more we could talk about. And for those who are just getting, you know, maybe this is the first time you're hearing a discussion on some of these topics. And, and I hope it's been insightful too for those of you who have looked at it before. I pray that it's been interesting as well. I, I know, I, I believe you have a YouTube channel. Is it Black SBA History? 
blackhistoryhistory.org. I also have a website, blackhistoryhistory.org. That is under construction right now. Okay. But the web the website is going strong, blacksdahistory.org on YouTube. Okay. And the website's under construction now. So. Well, thank you for joining yeah. us. And for those of you who are listening, if you have, if you want to interested in watching any of the lineage episodes on this, we have one called Adventist, sorry, Adventist and Abolition. We have another one called Ellen White and the Civil War and another one that looks at the issue of slavery as well so you can find those on our youtube channel uh, linear's journey on youtube thank you for joining us thank you dr baker for taking the time to to be with us really appreciate it and for sharing your insights and uh and for you know ministering wider than this podcast wherever you go we thank you for the ministry that you do and and for sharing on this important topic thank you it's been my pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. And for those listening, we pray God may bless you. And thank you for joining us on this episode of the Lineage Journey podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Lineage Journey is supported by your generous donations. Did you know that you can donate on a monthly basis? Any amount from $2 to 100 or whatever you decide through patreon.com forward slash lineage journey. Your donations go towards the cost of producing our varied content and we thank you for your support.